what's up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Talk Tech to Me. I'm your host, Craig Cartwright, and today I'm thrilled to be having another stellar guest on the podcast, Dr. Alexander L. Jamal, MD and PhD. He's a medical doctor, surgeon, scientist, entrepreneur, digital health expert, investor, med tech, and biotech enthusiast. Alex, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Awesome. Yes. So I think honestly, um, in, in terms of, of your title, I think that if anyone looks you up, they'll notice that you have two uh, doctors in front of your name, which I feel like is quite uh, rare, quite the achievement. And so um, can you help explain a little bit about how you got interested in both this uh, healthcare field, but also the technology field and kind of what your path that you took to get there was? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have a medical background. I studied medicine in uh, Hamburg, Germany. And um, after my studies, I started up as in a, my residency in surgery. So it was the general visceral and thoracic surgery at the University Hospital Hamburg-Eppendorf, it's called. And then um, during my studies, or not during my studies, um, during my residency, I also did a lot of research. This is how I ended up with the two uh, doctor titles. So I started up with my medical doctorate in um, was about uh, prostate cancer, uh, chromos um, chromosomal aberrations in prostate cancer. And then later on, I, I uh, was part of an MD-PhD program. Uh, it's, in German, it's called, uh, it's basically a human biology um, uh, studies and at the end you can write a thesis about something so i also did a thesis on pancreatic cancer i had my own uh, research group back then and we did lots of cancer research we even patented a um a cancer medication um agent back then and yeah so i did that for quite a while and then after my residency after i uh, finished my specialization as a visceral surgeon which is basically an abdominal surgeon or general surgeon you would say in america probably um i decided to go into tech so i was like i cannot do this my entire life only so i was i was finishing it and i was in my early 30s and i thought i cannot just perform surgeries until I'm 64, uh, 65 or 70. I need to see something else. I was also very interested in tech. Um, so I decided to look into it for about three years. So I uh, started working for Philips Health Systems and um, as a senior clinical consultant, they call it. So I was uh, performing consultancies for hospitals and um designing long-term strategic technical partnerships with hospital chains. And yeah, after two and a half years, I got acquired by another company called Umlaut, a German engineering company that wanted to um, build up their healthcare and life science um, part. And I was supposed to be head of, or I was head of it. And then they got acquired by Accenture, that uh, big company. That you probably know and then i decided to go back into medicine again <laughs> because it was right in the middle of the pandemic so i okay. uh, worked as a vaccination doctor and right and then afterwards i worked as a general practitioner i'm still doing this up to date and during the entire course i also started my own investing company which invests mm -hmm. in medtech startups and recently just two uh, two months ago I founded another company with a friend of mine or some friends of mine called Caps and Colors, basically a consultancy company and a company builder and ecosystem builder in yeah, Germany, Hamburg. That's awesome. I, I really, I really loved my time in Hamburg. I actually was there recently um, with Darvis. Uh, didn't dare to check out our, uh, our office there, but uh, yeah, love well, this that. Is, this is interesting. You know, this office, the coffee, uh, the, the little uh, cafe, right? <laughs> That's my office. <laughs> no. This is where Capson Carlos is also. Uh, so right next to Davis, it's uh, it's us also. So, oh, um, I should have stopped by. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't know the next time for sure. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Come over and have a coffee with us. Yeah. 100%. I, I want to get back as soon as possible for uh, people that haven't been to Hamburg. It is a gorgeous city um, right on the water. I didn't honestly, I didn't realize that Hamburg had such an influential port as well um, on in the world. I guess that shows my ignorance, but, uh, but it, it's a uh, bustling port. And actually what's funny is since I went to Hamburg, you know, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I have seen so many shipping containers with the name Hamburg on the side. I don't know. I guess once you go somewhere, you start realizing more of like your surroundings. So I'm always sending it to the team. Like we thought we got out, but we're back. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a big part for sure. Yeah. I think it's one of the biggest in Europe. And, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely one of the top in the world um, in terms of uh, exports. But yeah, in terms of, I mean, getting back into the conversation about you going back into medicine, um, you know, during the middle of COVID, it is, I mean, honestly, quite opposite of what the average experience is. I've, like a lot of the industry has shifted out of it. I know like in the States, one in five healthcare workers has left at this point um, since 2020. Um, they're anticipating a drop of around 47% of uh, healthcare workers in the U.S. starting in 2025, all the way through um, they'll have to fact check me on this, but I believe it's 2070. Uh, but anyway, like with no replacement, it's not that it's a new cycle of individuals. It's a net loss of around a projected net loss of 47%. So I'm curious to hear from you, um, what, you know, what jumpstart that, like what, you know, obviously the experience there is opposite of what the average experience is you're going back in. And then also from that experience, what is different now? I mean, there have, there has to be obvious differences, um, from pre COVID to now in terms of the operations. So just to get a little insight, um, from you, uh, you know, boots on the ground working daily in the industry. Yeah. Well, um, so first of all, why did I go back? So I was like, um, I was sitting there and the, um, they were in Germany, they, they really needed vaccination doctors. So they were mm -hmm. basically going um, or, or um, having commercials for, for physicians to come and work in the vaccination sites. Right. And so I thought um, as I was working a regular home, of, home office job, right. I was thinking, why not just going back there and uh, vaccinating people? So I just started yeah. up. And um, then the need just increased. So I got more and more shifts. And so eventually I thought, why not just do it full time, right? So I just did that, but just for a couple of months. It was just, I think, in December and January. And then I was thinking of actually um, founding the new business, but I had to wait for my co-founders who weren't mm -hmm. ready yet. They uh, were just in the process of quitting their jobs. So um, I was actually bridging that time with the vaccination. Um, and then also I thought it would be fun or it would be interesting to work in an outpatient setting because I was working a lot in the big hospitals and also in smaller ones, mm -hmm. but I never really was uh, part of a practice team, right? In an outpatient practice. Okay. So um, I was looking around to do um, or what to do next. And there's a big need for general practitioners here in, uh, in Germany. I think, well, in most parts of the world, there's a big need for that. And so I figured, why not do this? And um, I started up doing it. So it was only five months ago and I'm still working in the practice. And I, I really enjoy it. Just getting in touch with patients. It's a very wide variety of different diseases you see way more than if you just perform abdominal surgery. So it's basically always focused on the abdomen. And now I can do all kinds of um, diagnostics and uh, therapies. And it's very interesting. So I, I really enjoy that. Also, in combination with my other activities in tech, so it's a, it's a very good combination, I think. It really fulfills me to work as a doctor, but also as a con in tech consultancy. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's, um, that's awesome. So how do you, I mean, how do you see the industry shifting, like from a, from a standpoint of innovation? Because I, I saw like in your bio um, on LinkedIn that 
you have a high interest and also just a, an expertise in, in this intersection of what we, we would call health tech, but specifically with how AI innovation is affecting healthcare. So, yeah. I mean, what would you say, what is the outlook? What is the five-year, 10-year, 20? You can go as, as far as you would like, uh, just in terms of how healthcare is utilizing AI. Is it one, is it necessary? But then um, two, what is that transition going to look like in your opinion? Yeah. So um, maybe to start, start up with, I think it is absolutely necessary to implement AI in yeah. medicine because yeah. it enables us to really have individualized medicine. And this is the first time in uh, medical history that this is really possible. And let me tell you uh, what I mean. For example, when I uh, was doing my research in uh, pan for pancreatic cancer, what mm -hmm. we saw, we had all these different um, human cancer cells that we performed uh, experiments on. And we, when we char uh, characterized them, we actually saw that they are expressing all kinds of different um, growth factors receptors on um, on the cell surface side, right? And for example, there's one, it's called COX-2, uh, it's, it's cyclooxygenases 2, and you can really easily inhibit that one with aspirin, just regular aspirin, right? And we tried it and it didn't work, but however, it was just like a certain percentage of these cancer cells really express this kind of growth factor. And, and um, cancer cells tend to express all these growth factor receptors to get just a bigger stimulus for growth, right? Yeah. And what, what, what I wanted to say is um, that the genetic profile or the, the proteomic, the, the, the receptor profile of cancers, uh, of cancers can vary in a very, or can be very, um, individually different and um, if we have the manpower to really analyze it very deeply just imagine having a pathologist that is able to really dig into the, um, the individualized receptor setting of this one particular cancer then we could probably find ther a therapy for each and every cancer Right, and but this is not possible because right now in the, in the current setting, the pathologist has to um, has to see about I don't know maybe I don't know the exact number, but let's say two hundred patients a day or something, right? Yeah. Two hundred patient probes a day, or maybe even more. But if we had the chance to do this with computer vision, for example, we could really, really profile the individual cancers and yeah. then come up with individualized concepts. And this is a very interesting thought experiment because what we do right now in, um, well, in um, pharmaceutical research is having all these very big studies and you have to prove a certain effect on a, on a high number of individuals, right? But if we go in on the individualized level, we need to overthink this entire approach because it's very individualized. So this is just one example. Another example could be in surgery, for example, what we see is um, robotic surgery, an increasing number of robotic surgery. And this is also very interesting because how it works right now is that the surgeon actually sits in front of a um, joystick, if you will, yeah. and um, really operates the robot and the and all the different movements of the surgeons are basically translated into robotic movements, and you can uh, really track every single movement this, the the surgeon does. And this is the first time, and you can cor uh, correlate it with three D pictures as well, because you usually have three yeah. D cam. What you can do now is um, once you have a critical number, um, you can use an AI to partly automate different um, parts of the procedure, right? For example, uh, same with, um, or it's an analogy to um, autonomous 
ultra normies driving so my english is a little rusty um, <laughs> no, it's, okay. it's okay thanks for <laughs> thanks for accommodating my uh <laughs> my layman's english <laughs> so um for example if you if you have um autonomous driving it usually starts up with automating parts of it for example the parking or um just keeping the distance um, to the car in front of you right mm. and the, you could uh, think of the the same uh, the same thing in surgery so you could really start automating redundant uh parts of the procedure for example the skin closure or the anastomosis suing is very redundant you always do the same movement over and over again and this is these are parts that you can start automize and then eventually once you have a critical number you can you might even be able to perform it automate uh, autonomously but this is of course in i don't know 10 years or 15 years sure and um what what's also very interesting is that as a surgeon you usually have a you usually have a learning curve right so the best surgeon in my opinion is the one that almost um goes into pension so quits the job because he's so old of course um keeping in mind that he doesn't have parkinson's disease or dementia <laughs> or anything but sure, sure. if he's still in good shape yes he, he has the most experience right before retirement right so this is these are the most experienced surgeons and they they're most uh, the, the most um experienced surgeons are usually the best ones so you have this learning curve and but but um if you have ai you can basically accumulate data copy paste data mm -hmm. copy paste experience accumulate experience from different robots and and have this one system that gets better and better and better and uh eventually you will get to a point where the the system has um, performed more surgeries than any surgeon could ever do during his entire lifetime and then even copy paste it and right so this is also a very interesting aspect i think so you see both in diagnostics and also in therapy ai could play a really good important role in the future and i think it's absolutely necessary that we uh, implemented it and i also think that the doctors right now um should see ai as a as a useful tool that they should orchestrate just like a uh, um just like I don't know what's the English term for in German it's called dirigent dirigent or something on orchestra the one that is standing okay. in front oh 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 conduct like a it's um uh we call him a conductor yeah I believe conductor, right so right Con yeah, yeah conductor like using all these different AI uh, algorithms and just um yeah screening them and looking and applying them to the right um to the, to the right use. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, because that brings up a good point too. We, you, you mentioned like doctors should um, want to adopt more um, AI technology. I mean, do you find, because you obviously have an immense amount of um, a wealth of knowledge uh, in the space and you're interested in the space. So my question is, are you in the minority or the majority on that? I mean, is there, what's the general, um, reaction when you bring up integrating artificial intelligence into day-to-day -day operations in a hospital yeah well uh, i would say first of all i'm i'm part of a minority i think mm -hmm. because I, I i've been i've seen both um i worked in medtech and in the hospital and um, as a doctor but um it it completely depends on which profession you're approaching i think mm -hmm. for example mm -hmm. there are radiologists that um that are very um that, that are very um affinite to to use computer algorithms and computer vision algorithms and all kinds of different um computer programs to just perform very good diagnostics mm -hmm. and um but there are other there there, there are other um profession or um how do you say Professional specialities, medical yes, specialties, yeah. disciplines, um, special, yeah, disciplines, yeah, that that are not very um, 
that, that I could imagine would have a problem with it. I mean, if you just look at, um, for example, um, psychiatry, I could imagine it's very, you know, it's, it is, we, we call it, in Germany, we call it spoken medicine. So where you really have to interact with the patient in okay. terms of you know, performing therapy, there I could imagine that um, they're not really um, into AI that much, I could imagine, but I don't know. Yeah, certainly. No, I mean, that's, I would say I find that that's as I relate to that is what I'm saying. Um, in the sense that it really does depend on the profession. I mean, there are certainly times like obviously working for Darvis, we're selling a, um, artificial intelligence to hospitals, of course. And, um, uh, certainly it depends, it entirely depends on who's the first person that you're talking to, because you can either get the door shut on you or you can get let in and, you know, let up the chain quite quickly, um, depending upon their receptiveness to artificial intelligence, I think because of the labor crunch in the U S um, particularly in healthcare, it has helped spur some faster innovation change. I've always been told that, you know, I don't know if this is globally, but in the U S hospitals normally operate on a 15 year innovation cycle. So they, they adopt one new technology and then about, you know, 15 years later, that's when they're looking for a new technology, but it hasn't, I don't think that the essentially like what, what computer vision is replacing directly inside of hospitals is, are your RFID solutions, um, on yeah. the operational side, of course, there's clinical computer vision, um, solutions that detect uh, cancers earlier than humans can, et cetera. But in terms of where, where we are product fit, like where we are with the operations side of it, we're replacing RFID and RFID hasn't been adopted for that full innovation cycle yet. But I think that with the shortcomings plus the labor crunch, I think that's helping to spur the change. Um, there's yeah. of course, like uh, there's of course privacy concerns. I mean, do you think that, like Germany as a whole, and maybe even if you could shed some light on the European um, side, uh, what is the belief on privacy? I mean, are people, do people look at AI like, oh, it's big brother, um, this concept of big brother, or do they look at AI like, okay, this can actually help streamline um, my life. What do you, what's the general sentiment over um, in, in Germany and greater Europe? Yeah. So I think, um, Data privacy is a huge issue, especially in Germany, especially because um, of the history of Germany, you know, two totalitarian systems in the last hundred years. So the, the um, data privacy is a very big thing. However, I also think that the RFID solution that you mentioned is not nearly as um, as useful as computer vision because you can, of course, you can track Where's my, I don't know, sonography um, uh, device right now, but you cannot, you cannot say, is it used? Is it, or where's my bed, right? My patient bed, but you cannot say, is it used? Is it patient in there? Is, mm. is, um, does it need to be cleaned or anything? Right. So it's very, very limited. You can basically just track a location, but with computer vision, you can track all kinds of stuff. And, and um, also, what I find very interesting about the Davis solution, because I know it quite well, <laughs> is um, that you're using this anonymized approach of, of a digital twin. And I think this is uh, also a very um, sufficient way to, to um, guarantee data privacy or um, personal, privacy, uh, personal data privacy in a patient or in a clinical setting. Um, and still using all this data to um, for good for the patients, right? So, but it is quite a tough market, I think, Germany. They have really, really complicated data privacy laws, especially uh, um, in a healthcare setting. They say it's healthcare data is the most sensitive civil data there's out there. And, um, and so, and and the uh, and the data privacy laws in Germany are very very strict. For example, we have some states that require that the patient data does not leave the hospital. Mm -hmm. Other states say they they uh, the uh, 
the health data cannot leave the the state. And other uh, states that say it cannot leave the country. However, what it definitely cannot, uh, or um, all states have in common that you cannot use some American hyperscaler, for example, because that way um, it would leave the country, of course, mm -hmm. if you use all solution. So it's very, very strict laws. And if you make it work in Germany, you can probably make it work anywhere. But at least that's what we always say. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have some familiarity with the uh, with with the strict nature of um, German uh, privacy laws. <laughs> it's it's no easy hill to climb with with getting that approval. I think because I mean, ultimately, I was I was actually just looking this up um, regarding the. Uh, basically non-federal general acute care hospitals in the States, 86% of them have adopted an EHR or an electronic health record. And so I think from an American perspective, it's, it's, um, it's always in the back of our mind, I, I suppose that, uh, our information is somewhere <laughs> like it's, it's, it's hanging out somewhere, um, in terms of, uh, you know, it's an electronic record. So I think the general sentiment, it's much easier to get um, American hospitals interested in artificial intelligence just because it's not as strict from my experience. Um, I mean, certainly we still have to go through um, HIPAA compliance and you've got the, your SOC 2 compliances and name GDPR, of course, which is the European side. But I'm just um, CCPA. You can go keep going down this list of just um, all these uh, privacy and data concern uh, organizations. But uh, just generally speaking, getting inside of the American hospital is much easier than, I mean, especially like when, when you look at our UK division, that the NHS is extremely difficult to uh, get into. And then, of course, with our um, uh, German side, that is also equally, if not more difficult to get into. So um, I think that's kind of where, like, it's really for me, in my opinion, Art, the artificial intelligence companies that will survive are the ones that can make can make do with the current requirements because it still is there's still a a there's still an aurora there's still an environment that um I think generally speaking that you not only are trying to sell the product but you're also trying to convince people that AI is not scary yeah. um so it's almost sure. like two problems that you have to have to solve right <laughs> yeah i totally agree and um i mean you also have to keep in mind that to change laws is also re a really long process you know yeah. how it is in the u.s but in germany like the land of bureaucracy i will say it, it takes ages right yes. so but you have to cope with the current uh, laws or otherwise it's going to take you 10 more years yeah to implement. Yeah, 100%. And that's, and I wanted to get into the topic too, about this, um, about digital twinning, you, you brought that up um, in a previous uh, answer that you gave. Um, how I've had really, really great conversations with with individuals on the NVIDIA side, um, with one of our good partners. And um, with them, they are really pursuing the idea of digital twins, especially with the simulation process of being able to basically, I mean, you get to simulate surgeries and medications um, on a digital twin of yourself for a fraction of the cost that it would take to simulate, to run simulations now. Basically, if if it's one, even possible, but but two, if the, the average person, there's no way we could afford that. Um, but when you start talking about this um, metaverse concept or omniverse concept, if you will, uh, with, with the kind of the, the welding or the meshing of the physical and digital realms, I mean, do you, if you don't mind elaborating a little more on this uh, digital twin concept, do you believe that that is the, that's 100% the future that we're all going to have an accessible digital twin where we can experiment and run simulations before we actually um, go through with the procedure on our bodies? Um, well, yes and no. Uh, first of all, you ha we have to, um, maybe we have to talk about what exactly I mean when I say digital twin. Sure. I, I don't, what I don't uh, think of, what I do not think of is a, clo a digital clone of our body. 
because sure. this is quite complex, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many factors, metabolic ones, uh, flu- um, all kinds of. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to even get, uh, get into it, but there's so many different factors that can um, that that are really, really hard to simulate, and maybe they and that are not even close to being understood, right? Especially not if you if you look at the interactions. So I'm not thinking of really having a digital twin that can basically simulate the medication intake or surgery. But what I think um, when I talk about um, digital twins is, for example, the, the, um, the, the, the 3D model of processes in hospitals, right? Or, um, for, or you can also, or maybe not only processes, but even certain situations. For example, if you if you perform a simulation of an emergency, right, of emergency treatment, even um, you can really uh, you can really train extreme situations to very to a very um, granular degree um, during the simulations without harming anybody, right? For example, yeah. this is something training is a big issue. Another one is um, processes in general. So you, for example, you, you look at the system itself of an uh, emergency department, for example, right? The patient comes in, is seen by some uh, administrator, then afterwards seen by a nurse or, or a physician, and um, somebody is taking blood, somebody is um, um, performing a CT scan or whatever, and you have all these different players performing certain tasks and you can simulate that and make this more efficient for example but just by performing it right and uh, so i think simulations or the the other thing you said is surgeries for surgery i could also imagine uh, imagine performing different simulations in terms of robotic surgery to a certain degree because you could say okay we use that approach or another approach and then use the the CT scan data, which is basically a 3D image of your organs or body, right? And uh, use this to a certain degree. Um, So so this is something that is really approachable, I think. The other one that I was uh, just talking about, so the the entire digital twin of your immune system and everything that is uh, in your body, this is probably something that we won't see until quantum computing is uh, widely available for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, so you think in terms of innovation cycles, um, we just, we're not, we're not to a point yet. Um, like the, the quantum computing uh, capabilities, it's just not, we're not anywhere near the ability to basically put on uh, a VR headset and an experiment on a metabolic, um, basically a, a digital twin of yourself in the, in the, in the digital realm. Yeah. I don't believe that. I mean, yeah. I, I know that some, um, some, some companies claim to help that <laughs> and to, to, uh, to simulate, uh, to simulate certain holistic um, body reaction and I don't believe in that what I do believe is that parts of it can can be simulated yeah. especially yeah. when it's just about for example a, a certain type of fluid flow for example the blood in your heart can be simulated of course right yeah. or, um, or or other things but like having an overall there's a twin I don't think is uh, possible yet maybe yeah. in the in the, in the long term, in the next fifty years, for sure. But right now, with a with a um, computing capa- capabilities that we have right now, no way. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure thing. Yeah, that's and because I mean that's the thing too, right? Like I mean, from the Darvis perspective, like our digital twin is like you were saying earlier. It's literally just to protect privacy. Um, it's it's um, complete real time shredding of of the stream. Um, that we're that the neural network is taking in to in order to run the um, basically to run the analytic uh, on the patients. So like for example, with our with fall prevention, right? So we've we're able to actually detect uh, different tiers and um, 
have a little bit of predictive analysis and in, in terms of what the risk level is for that patient, um, depending on how they're interacting with the bed, but no one can actually look into the room through the camera, uh, which is an interesting concept because there are fall, like there, I would say more fall detection uh, camera solutions right now in the States. Uh, honestly, I'm not too familiar with the global market um, on fall detection um, software solutions, but the, the majority in the States, it's a very obvious camera. It's usually mm-hmm. on a pole. They roll it to the end of the bed. And there's like, I mean, there's real people sitting on a screen uh, watching the patient, which I yeah. mean, to be honest, like you look at what, what is, you really start to evaluate um, what is worse. I mean, as a family member, you want your elder elderly uh, family member being watched. I mean, you don't want them to fall because that's a leading cause of, of um, health deterioration, uh, fall injuries when you're in an elder state. So for, for us, I look at it in this way. I mean, you have one solution where there's an entire team of people literally watching your every move um, and then sending it to a verifier. And then the verifier sending it to a digital uh, physician or a telephysician to beam into the room to tell them to calm down. Or you can have it totally anonymized in the sense that like with our neural network, you're nobody's actually watching, but yet it's sending that metadata to the nurse in order to go make their rounds. Um, and in a lot of ways, I feel like AI is actually less scary, less big brother than what the current solutions are that are like in, <laughs> implemented right now in, in American hospitals. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I mean, um, the alternative, which we have here in Germany, is that um, it's called Nachtwache, which basically means night watch. So it's a it's a little it's a student job you can do as a, as a medical student, and mm-hmm. and you are for for some yeah for a little money you can sit there during the nights next to the dementia patients and watch them that they don't fall out of the bed. Right. 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 Very labor intensive. I'm saying (laughs) and very boring for, for the, for the Nachtwache, for the, for the night watch person who's sitting next to it. So this Mm. is the alternative. And I don't think it's less intruding to be honest. Mm. Privacy. Because you have somebody sitting, you uh, sitting right next to you, watching you 24 seven. No, it's no, it's yeah, not, not only labor intensive, but very intriguing. And um, yeah, and a lot of, I mean, honestly, too, a lot of the companies that are doing this. Um, and again, I mean, we're we're talking about innovation cycles, right? So this was just the this was the best solution possible. Um, you know, when they were adopting solutions like this, these fall detection solutions. So, but at the end of the day, you know, the companies these that are performing telesitting where their solution requires someone at the other end of the screen, you know, watching the monitor, they usually pass that labor burden onto the hospital too. So now the hospital is required to source the people who actually watch. (laughs) And I mean, we talked about it earlier with the labor crunch right now, one in five healthcare workers are leaving. I mean, it's, it's not like people exactly are lining up to watch a monitor through the night. Um, And you know, honestly, too, from what we've we, what we have looked at with security personnel or compliance personnel that's watching a monitor, you get about one hour of productivity out of them. And it's not yeah. anything against those people. It's just that as a human being, I mean, staring at I work in tech. I know what it's like to, to like put in some like real dedicated hours on a computer. It hurts your eyes. So, I mean, you, you start you tell them to sit there for eight hours, nine hours and just watch a screen. It's not accurate. And so then you have the conversation that, you know, your family member truly is not safe, even with those. Um, it's there's so many patients now. I mean, how could you possibly realistically catch every single fall without AI? And that's kind of what our idea behind the fall prevention solution is. It's just again another iteration. Like we're talking about going from RFID to computer vision to track assets, or you know, tracking patient behavior without having to have someone sit on the other end of the screen. Um, the, yeah, they can't find the labor even if they wanted to. To be honest. Yeah. And also what I think is um, you really, especially if you say that you have workers shortage in the healthcare market right now or personal uh, shortage, um, you know, at least in Germany, a big chunk of, um, of the work uh, health personnel is doing right now is documentation. 
Mm. Right? If you could automate that, yeah. you would really, really lift some very um, interesting efficiencies there, I think. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. No, and to that point too, we've, um, we recently were having a conversation uh, with a leader in the healthcare space in the States uh, that right now, the reason they can't, they're trying their best to find health tech or um, nurse technicians, basically uh, the individuals that normally would, would uh, perform a lot of the documentation process on behalf of the nursing staff. But they can't find them because in the in the states right now, I mean, we I guess I mean that could be a whole nother can of worms, like a whole nother conversation that we could have about whether or not that's right or wrong. But the, the point is, right now, as it stands, the average um, nurse technician is making less than someone working at a big box retailer right now, just with the way okay. that the wage growth has worked. So um, you know, Target, Walmart. The, these companies are start Amazon. They're starting out at such a high uh, hourly rate that uh, it's hard to get nurse technicians. I mean, you really have to find someone that's truly passionate about it because they're not getting paid what the nurse is getting paid. But also, it's I mean, it's one hundred percent more stress than working at Target. I mean, nothing against nothing against the Target employees, but I think anybody could reasonably say, yeah, working in a hospital is higher stress than working in a retail location. So from, from their standpoint, what he was telling us, he's like, I don't blame them. You know, like we can't, we're capped at a certain way with our budgets that we can't really budge on this hour, hourly wage until there's some change. And uh, it takes a long time to make that change. And so they're losing all these workers to the the retailers or to, you know, the Starbucks and, and so for, from that perspective, all that documentation still has to be done, though. And so that was his point is that now our, our nurses are basically, if they're lucky, they're able to spend 25 percent of their shift with patients. And that's if yeah. it's like that's if it's optimal. And that's scary. I mean, yeah. And that's yeah. I mean, that's 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 really scary to hear that that uh, the documentation has become so intense and there's nothing to supplement that uh, like with, there are of course solutions out there that can supplement um, with AI, that documentation process. But again, it's about getting the hospitals on board and proving that the, you know, proving that the records are safe and that we're to compliance standards, et cetera. Exactly. So same in Germany. So I read this publication the other day in Germany up to seven, 60 to 75% of, of the time is spent in, com- in front of a computer of a nurse, right? Wow. So this is this is really really bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, also, what you guys don't have, maybe, oh, and I think in the US, I don't know if it's that much of a problem, but in a in an area where I live in Europe, where we have uh, many different languages, right? You cannot really um, you, you cannot really have somebody working there that doesn't speak German if the whole documentation mm. is in German, right? Or, and, yeah. or his German is written, German is not that good. And then he will have trouble um, performing the documentation. And the documentation is the basis for, for um, invoicing the, uh, the things you're doing there. Right? So, so it's a really big problem. So I think, um, Interesting. especially in areas where you rely on um, on foreign nurses mm-hmm. or others, it could be a really, really interesting thing to automate document uh, documentation. Yeah, that's crazy. I, honestly, I didn't even think about that. Um, in places where there's a mass amount of different languages spoken in a small area, I mean, because you're right with with Europe. I mean, there's so many different languages spoken on the continent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not really something that we deal with here. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's either basically Spanish or English. Um, and, and honestly, everything in the States, even though I guess technically speaking, there's no official language, um, but it's, everything's in English and the, the landmass is so massive that you don't really have to worry going, even if you go from New York to California, it's all standardized. So that's an right. inter- that's an interesting uphill point. I mean, that's an uphill battle for for Europe in general. Is that like yeah. how there has to be a sol- maybe? I don't know. Maybe the next solution is real time translation, right? Of um, of uh, healthcare documents. <laughs> maybe we just came up with something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
That's fine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for example, if you look at Switzerland, they have like three or four different languages in this tiny little country, right? I mean, um, or if yeah. I travel from Netherlands through Germany to France, it takes me like, I don't know, maybe 10 hours by car. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's a little more, but maybe 11 hours. But however, it's Dutch, it's German, it's French. Just wow. Right? So, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. honestly when I was a couple of years ago, I was traveling through um, Eastern Europe. And that was the most striking thing to me is that it felt like we had not been traveling by train for very long at all. And there was obvious language differences as you were crossing through each border. And of course, I mean, that's not even like those languages are not the same character system either. So you're really you really can't figure it out. (laughs) So that was uh, that was definitely a a struggle to try to figure out where to go (laughs) based off signs in Eastern Europe. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, and honestly, too, that maybe that that spurred me to think about uh, places like these uh, de- developing countries in the sense, like look at India that has uh, how many languages? It's like over 60, right? I mean, it might even be it's something ridiculous that how many languages are spoken in India. I'm sure they have the same problem. Yeah, probably. I, I don't even know if it, I mean, there are some countries that I know of that where the um, the the. Uh, the language spoken in medicine is just English, right? But in Germany, for example, it's not that way. Mm. And traditionally, also, um, if you if you um, if you have patients that are above, let's say, seventy or seventy-five years old, mm. they usually don't speak very good English, right? So it's also yeah. a problem that you cannot really communicate with the patients. Then, wow. Right? So. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a case that automation is needed because if basically if you if you just had some sort of solution that's an agnostic look at every language and can translate into basically one uniform um, language, whether you know you could choose in real time, basically uh, what you want to read the documentation. in. I mean, that's that seems to be the answer because, you know, that's honestly too one of the I was. Um, in London in 2017, I was working a job in London in 2017 and, um, I was hospitalized with some sort of, uh, British disease, I guess I had, I had never heard of it. So it was, it's called Quincy if anybody wants to look it up, but, uh, it's basically tonsillitis, but it was, it was horrible. And so I didn't like, I didn't have a GP, like I didn't have, I wasn't assigned a general practitioner. So I had to go to the A and E, uh, ended up getting hospitalized very minor surgery, um, occurred. And one thing I noticed that was very different than the States, uh, was that like, for example, the ENT that operated on me again, it wasn't really an operation. It was just a numbing agent, but, um, he was, he was Mexican. Uh, the doctor that I was dealing with before that was Egyptian, I believe, uh, the nurse was British. And then one of the other two of the texts were Eastern European. And then one was another person I was dealing with was German. And so it was this, like, it's this mashup of cultures that you don't necessarily experience as much in the States. So, I mean, that's a, that's a great point to bring up about this, um, about some of the issues we're facing in healthcare overseas. Yeah. Also, yeah, for sure. Also, if you want to recruit them from other countries, you will need that, right? Especially yeah. in the U S we have a labor shortage right now. Yeah. And you need, I don't know, maybe nurses from the Philippines or something. Right, right. For the documentation. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I guess um, as we're winding down here, um, is there anything like if you could say just a few words on what has to take place, in your opinion, for a more efficient, a more accurate and a safer healthcare environment? Um, I think we've talked about it throughout some of the topics, but if you could just um, summarize what you believe is is the next step, what's going to take us to a better healthcare system um, in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Well, I think the first thing that has to happen, at least um, here where I'm living, I think in the U.S., um, uh, you are a bit more advanced in that case, but I think what's very, very important is just to to uh, digitize most of the processes that we have mm. not yet digitized, because this is the basis for us to really implement deep learning algorithms or anything 
on top of that, right? And also it makes uh, studies easier. And um, so, so this is the first step. Also, I think what's very important, and this is something that I'm trying to um, get public awareness here for, is that during the medical studies, you don't really get in touch with data science that much. I mean, there is, I remember me having, uh, in university, having a course called uh, Biometrics, and it was basically a course on statistics, but there was no pro programming involved. There was no uh, data literacy, I would call it, right, at all. And I think this is something that the, the physicians and nurses of the future really, really have to, um, have to know in order to use all this little um, digital yeah, assistance in the future, the, 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 the deep learning assistance that we will have. Because what are, nobody or as a, when you come out of university, you don't really know what kind of abilities or limitations a deep learning algorithm has, computer vision has, right? So we need to implement that more into our uh, university curriculums. This is one thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, the other thing is that we, in general, we should be more open to innovation because if you look at, look at other industries, um, especially when it comes to digitization and um, AI and implementation, usage of uh, AI, uh, other industries are far more advanced than healthcare so far. So I think this is something that we need to do uh, in the future. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Great, uh, great parting words. And I really appreciate you joining today. I think this was an awesome conversation. I'm sure the, the listeners got a, a lot of good information as well about what we have to do with the current state of, of healthcare. So Alex, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, having me. It was great fun. I hope my English wasn't too rusty and, um, <laughs> Yeah, it was perfect. No, thanks for accommodating me. I need to I need to learn German. <laughs> All right. See you, everyone. <laughs> All right. Thank you.